Hey, this is Barbara Corker, and you are now tuned in to Business Unusual. And everything you ever learned about business, throw it out the window. I'm going to tell you the real deal. Listen in. Today, I'm going to answer all your burning questions about work, life, starting a company, getting on track, and much, much more. Be sure to call in to the Business Unusual hotline with your question at 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. This episode is presented by LinkedIn Jobs. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash barbara. That's linkedin.com slash B-A-R-B-A-R-A to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. No one knows more about the mind of an entrepreneur than the guy I have with me here at the studio today. I have Jason Pfeiffer, editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. He's here to talk to you about his new book, Build for Tomorrow. It's all about change, and boy, have we had our fair share of change lately. So get ready to get smart. So Jason, you've been in Entrepreneur Magazine for six years. Yes. Doesn't sound like a long time, but when you work in a wheel for six years, it is a long time. Mm -hmm. I'd be very curious, because you're in the cat seat, how has the entrepreneur changed have they changed or it's the same guy who's reading your magazine, same woman who's reading your magazine? Oh, no, it's totally different. Yeah. And when I first got to entrepreneur, I, I was I was trying to grapple with how do we how do we reach this? How do we meet this moment, this important moment that we seem to be in? Because here, this brand had been really functioning like a small business publication for a long time. Very much so, yes. Yeah, but I, I was looking around and I was seeing everybody identify as an entrepreneur. Like the mm. word had become something more than it used to be. And I, I was getting emails from, <laughs> I got an email from a 14-year-old who wanted my <laughs> advice on what to do with all the fake entrepreneurs at her high school. Like oh my God. that's where we're at, right? Like there's, <laughs> there we're, we're stratifying by by who's real and fake in high school. So I realized like, there's a there's a cultural moment happening right now, and we needed to rise up to meet that. And I thought, well, what is it that connects all these people? You know, everybody who calls themselves were, an entrepreneur. Were you also questioning who were your people? Were they younger? Were they a different audience? Or was you focused on connecting them? I was focused on connecting them all because mm -hmm. the way I think about it is. Each product will reach different people, right? The the print magazine is going to reach probably an older, more established audience. The, the online is going to reach a broader range. We've got social media. So I wanted to think, who is it that we're talking to and how do we talk to them that kind of unites them all? Mm -hmm. And I came up with this thesis. And the thesis is this. It better be a good one. I, you Let's tell me. <laughs> the one thing that connects everybody who calls themselves an entrepreneur is the experience of being an entrepreneur. The emotional experience, like the loneliness and the craziness mm. and the problem solving your way through walls. That is something that you get a ton of people together that all call themselves an entrepreneur, but all do different things into a room. That's the one thing that they can relate to. And I thought if we can speak to that and we can talk about what is hard about this journey and mm -hmm. how do you problem solve and how do you think creatively. That's rich with fodder, my God. It sure is. It covers everything. And people can get tax tips somewhere else. That's where I wanted to live. Mm -hmm. And prior to you arriving there, were you addressing an entrepreneur in a different way? What was the old model that you switched from? Oh, yeah. yeah well, we really were more nuts and bolts small business. And mm -hmm. we still do that. But when I the magazine that I took over, for example, the print magazine, it had a whole section about money. 
And you'd look through yes. that section, and it would always be, it would be tips on finding an investor, and it would be tips on finding a, you know, how to deal with a bank and whatever. And I just felt like th those are things that people can get in so many other ways. So I, I scrapped, I scrapped it all. You know, I might uh, interject yeah. here. I used to, fa I, I'm a quick reader, not really a reader, a peruser, quick mm -hmm, through mm -hmm. the magazine. I used to find in your old magazine, in the old days, uh, nothing worthwhile. Mm. So much of it had to do with money. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But if I had thought you were addressing the main core, which is overcoming obstacles, how do you feel? The lonely journey. I think that would have been ripe for great advice. But I never saw it there till you came along. You really did change it. I appreciate that. Yeah. It 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 was, it was also where my entry point was mm -hmm. because my background is not. As I, I think of myself as an entrepreneur now, I do a lot uh, and I have my own media company. But back then, I really was like a media guy and mm -hmm. I was trying Very to much. figure out how do I connect with this audience? And the thing that I realized was in my own pursuit of building my career, I had taken a lot of risks and I had found that a lot of challenges made me feel very vulnerable. And I was seeing that in the people that I was reaching as well mm -hmm. through Entrepreneur. And I was connecting with them on that way. And I saw that people weren't talking about that enough and in enough smart ways. And there was a hunger for that. And mm -hmm. I just knew how to connect with people on that level. And I realized, you know, like you have to lean in to the strength that you have and to the insight that you have. Because if it works for you connecting with an audience personally, I think it'll work at scale too. Bring me back to those early days when you took over. What do you do with that concept? Okay, you believe this is going to be the new audience you're going to address in this kind of way. What do you do? Bring your staff people together and say, okay, this is what I believe in. Get on board. I want you going and covering this obstacle. I want you to drop that funding article. I want you. <laughs> were you were you like a dictator and could you force that change overnight, or did you have to bring the old guard around to your way of thinking? So I no, I'm not dictatorial in any way. You know what I hate about being a leader is that if you say something, people will do it. <laughs> like I, the reason That's I, exactly what I love about that. <laughs> the, the reason I hate that is because I might not have the best idea, but I know that if I say something, my team is just going to execute it and maybe they had a better idea. Mm. And so I really want to strike this balance and surround myself with people who are comfortable pushing back against mm -hmm. what I'm thinking. And, and I, I often will ask people what they think before I tell them oh, good, what I think. Good formula. Thank you. Mm. And so that's, that's what I did early. Now, the challenge with taking something over and making a change is that it's not your team. Like You didn't build that team. You mm. inherited that team. And so you have to figure out who shares your vision and who is excited to execute it. Did people resist you at first? Um, a lot of people didn't get it. Mm. Like a lot of the old team just didn't get it. And so we had to make, I mean, we changed almost the entire staff. But you proved yourself right. I, I hope so. And how about when you were working back at the community newspaper in the Boston area? I think yeah. it was. That was one of your very early jobs. Mm -hmm. Was that something that uh, kind of made you realize you could have a big idea and make it happen? Or were you just a staff reporter and what did you report on? So my very first job out of college was at the Gardner News. Mm -hmm. North Central Massachusetts, like 6,000 circulation at the time, covering nothing. <laughs> it was covering nothing. There was nothing happening. Uh, and so I wrote I wrote about school plays. I wrote about local diners. And you were free to write about whatever you want, like as though it was your own own magazine? In a way. I mean, you had, you know, I had an editor. But, you know, the thing is that at that, at that small local level, 
you know, there's not a ton going on. And so oftentimes it's really a challenge of like, what do we get into this paper? Absolutely. We have eight pages to fill. What do we have this week? Right. Just go out and find something. And and so, but I'll tell you what I learned because I learned a really important lesson at that time, which I think still applies today. and And I think about it a lot, which is, okay, I was there for a year, a year and change, and I didn't like it there. Um, I was kind of bitter about being mm. there, to be honest, because I had these ambitions to do big things. They were holding you back, you felt. I felt they were holding me back. Mm. Nailed it. And eventually, I, I had to realize two things. Number one, they weren't holding me back. If if I was better than this place, I would be somewhere else. Mm. It's not them holding me, right? So I, I needed to learn things. And then number two was I wasn't going to get it there. And I wasn't going to get it by just shining bright in this little place that I was. I needed to go to other people. You don't believe if you are a shining star at a little place, you have a better shot at being noticed and getting to do what you want. Uh, You don't think it's better in that situation than having to move to another place and not know what you're going to get? I think that it's different for each person, but I'll tell you a little formula that I came up with, which I think Mm. helps. So I came up with these three questions and I, I didn't do this overtly when I was there, but when I look back on it, this is what I did. I asked myself these three things. What do I have? What do I need? What's available? What do I have? What do I need? What's Pretty available? practical advice. Super practical because fo- follow it through. What do I have? I have this job and it allows me to write every day and that's good, but it's not connecting me with larger opportunities. What do I need? I think I need to learn from more experienced people. I need to learn from more experienced editors. I also need to prove myself at larger levels. And then what's available? That, that I think, is the trick because people, when they think what's available, they might think, what's available in five years? What's available in a fantasy land? What's available if only I had more resources or more connections or more whatever? But what's, what's literally available right now? Like, that's the question. I think people think locally on that question as well. Mm-hmm. Yes. What's, what's right around me that I might know of? And Right. And so but the, the question really is, like, if you made some kind of change right now, what is available to you? What can you do today that's mm-hmm. literally within your reach but probably not where you're thinking to reach? For me, the answer was freelancing. I could quit my job. I could sit in this dumpy apartment next to a graveyard that I lived in for $500 a month with some college friends, and I could cold pitch the New York Times and the Washington Post. These people wouldn't hire me. I wasn't experienced enough, but maybe they'll take a chance on me with one article. And if I can get one article, I can get a second mm. article. If I get a second, I get a third. That's what was available. So I quit that job. And I, that's what I did. And, and you proposed the actual article or wrote it and mailed it in and said, you want to run with this? Uh, you propose it. So yeah. you, you come up with an idea and then mm-hmm. you track down an editor and then you send them basically a proposal. You know, like, this is the story idea that I have. This is the research that I've done. Here's why I think it would be a fit. Mm-hmm. And most people will ignore you. I got, a, I got a lot of ignoring. Far more ignoring than rejection. Great life skill. Yeah, it's true. Is to pursue, is to keep going when you're ignored. And, um, and eventually I got those pieces and those pieces then proved to other publications that I could work at a higher level. And that's what advanced my career. I think that had I stayed and just was a shining star at this tiny publication. Maybe I think, run that publication or start your own in exactly. that Exactly. But I, I don't know that I want that. I didn't want yeah. that. And the next thing I could have done is I could have just gotten a somewhat larger job, right? Tiny newspaper to a slightly larger newspaper. But that wasn't a path that I wanted. I wanted to skip steps. And I realized the only way to do that was to go to them. Never wait for someone to come to you. Mm-hmm. You go to them. There's so uh, so much change in your field. I think yeah. probably more than any other field. Perhaps. Where do you think publishing is going to be, say, five years out? So I 
have a little way of evaluating things, and I've done this with publishing too, which is I ask you this have question. A lot of I have a lot of little things. tricks. Yes, yeah. I do. This is how I live my life. Is I like, well, basically, I like look at what has worked for me, and then see is there a principle here, and then I kind of run it by other people. Say, were you doing this, or have you observed this? And if if I get a good response, then I kind of program it into my brain. Like, oh, here's a thing to do. And in this case, uh, it is ask the question, what is this for? If you ask the question, what is this for about anything that you're doing, and you ask it over and over again, you can watch how the answer changes, or you can watch how there's no good answer anymore. Mm. And in the case of publishing, I ask the question, what is content for? If you were to ask this question decades ago, I think the answer would have been content is for monetization. Right? You can you can sell ads into the content. You could sell subscriptions to the content. Very true. But that is not the case for a lot of content anymore, right? I mean, it is it is for some for major television shows like Shark Tank. You make a lot of money off of that. But for like a magazine, it's much harder because we're competing for a very small slice of advertising dollars, thanks to Google and Facebook, which gobbled everything up. So. What is content for if not really for monetization anymore? Because it's so much harder to monetize that kind of content. Well, I think that there's an answer. And the answer is content is for relationships. Because people will trust you because of the content. Mm. And once they trust you, then you can sell them products or services that they trust you because of the relationship that you built because of the content. Right, so you look around and you see brands rushing into content. And mm. I think that that's a validator that content is a relationship building. So, you know, where is publishing going? I think that the answer is, look, the New York Times is always going to be the New York Times, right? This is not the game that they're playing. But for, for most of the publishing ecosystem, I think that the answer has to be that you produce great work so that people know your brand and trust mm. you. And then you figure out how else to serve them in monetizable ways. Oh, it's certainly true of social media, my God. I yeah. just don't think of it as print somehow. Mm. But you say it's the same. Both. Yeah, well, you know, the, the entrepreneur print magazine mm -hmm. makes money, mm -hmm. but not, not the money it made 30 years ago. So what is it for? I'll tell you what it's for. It's the greatest advertisement for our brand. It's in every airport, right? Mm -hmm. It's in every bookstore. You walk past it, and it, because you see this, this print magazine, you think, oh, what an authoritative brand. Mm -hmm. And once you build that kind of trust and authority, then people are in. And now you can move them through your ecosystem and create lifetime value. Let's take a short break to talk about a company I love. In business, everyone wants the best people, but hiring someone new can feel pretty scary because you're always left wondering, have I really seen the best candidates out there? Well, I'll tell you what I do. I always go straight to LinkedIn Jobs because it helps me find the right match fast, and it's free. Their simple tools make it easy for me to focus on the candidates with the right skills and experience, so I know I'm interviewing the strongest candidates up front. Hey, we all hustle to finish every year strong, but I know the importance of hiring the right teammates to make it happen. When it comes to hiring, you don't have any time to fool around, and LinkedIn Jobs' easy-to-use templates make it simple. That's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires. When I use LinkedIn Jobs, I'm confident my job post has gotten in front of all the right people. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash barbara. That's linkedin.com slash b-a-r-b-a-r-a to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Now let's get back to the show. You said earlier that entrepreneur, the word or the concept was much smaller in the old days than yeah. it is now. So Richard, I think it's a billion dollar name to actually mm. corner the name Entrepreneur Magazine. Yeah. But I remember like uh, 10, 15 years ago, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But right now you own a big deal. You know what I always say in sales meetings when we talk to clients is I say it's a good time to be a brand called entrepreneur. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> it just okay. is. Do you think that Shark Tank has helped the brand answer me honestly? We'd mm-hmm. like to think so, but we're sharks. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so yes, with one caveat, and I'd be very interested in your I thought on this. I do not want to hear about your caveat. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Uh, so, so I think yes in that what Shark Tank has done is show... I think the most important thing that we can do in business is, is um, culturally speaking, is tell stories. And the reason for that is because when people see stories of success, it gives them permission Absolutely. to go chase that dream too. And importantly, it also helps their entire network understand their dream. Because when you talk to entrepreneurs in developing markets, if you mm-hmm. talk to entrepreneurs in, in Africa, which I have, it's really interesting because they don't have as many stories of successful entrepreneurs. And therefore, if somebody wants to quit their stable job and start something of their own, their parents don't understand, their friends don't understand, their boss doesn't understand. And they're saying, what are you doing? You're crazy. And they'll try to talk them out of it. Whereas mm. here, I think because of the story of Steve Jobs and, and the stories of Shark Tank, that you really get this cultural permission to chase things. Now, here's my caveat. And I want, I want to know what you think about this. Um, the caveat is that I think that Shark Tank has convinced a bunch of people that the only way to start their business is to find an investor. Yes, absolutely right. But that's the nature of the show. Yes. Oh, I, I'm not yeah. criticizing the show. I love the show. I watch every episode. But um, but I think that that's, that's something that people have learned that they need to unlearn. Because, yeah. of course... The majority of the of the businesses that are that are showing up on Shark Tank in the real world, you know, if you have a clever product business, you are not actually pitching investors of of your <laughs> and your colleague's yeah. status, right? That that's a manufactured scenario, and I don't think people understand that, and so they they often I will see it in 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 questions if I'm on social media and I'm talking to entrepreneurs, and they'll ask me as a starting point versus right. Bootstrap, which mm-hmm. is the way everybody really does it and right. still really does it if they're going to be successful. Yeah. I think the technology field has brought that upon us too. Mm, yeah. I would say that four-fifths of the uh, entrepreneurs that pitch to us on Shark Tank have no business asking for funds. Oh, <laughs> it makes no sense. You know? right. I got an email yesterday from a guy who said he wanted to be a shoemaker. Where does he get the funding? Would I be interested? I'm like, what? Yeah. You know, and I've, I'm talking about a shoe repair shop. Mm-hmm. Those little tiny shops. You know, <laughs> right. Hey, how, how do we make, I mean, the sharks constantly ask, how do I make money on this? Yeah. Yeah. And there's not very many answers. No, it's show. not. But you know, but it's. I'm glad you asked that because I don't think that people understand what the relationship is. Yeah. Right, like that. That the reason that a shark would invest, the reason any investor would invest, is because this to company make has to money. Right. To quote my colleague Kevin, <laughs> yeah. to make money, it has to grow large enough that the people who invest in it are, and that's not most businesses, yeah. and that that's fine, right? I mean, the people. You know, there's something I think also that came out of the Silicon Valley uh, tech explosion is, and you see it in Shark Tank um, too, which is 
which is a, a lionization of extreme scale, which is great mm. for many companies. But look, people can Disaster have... Disaster for many more. Yes. Mm-hmm. And people can have a lifestyle business where they open that shoe repair shop and it supports their family. And that's wonderful. It doesn't need to be a... But today they're more apt to print t-shirts, sell it also at the shoe store, mm-hmm. ask what else they could do right. to generate revenue. And that's great. Yeah. That's great. But like... Everyone needs to set their own definition of success. I I think you get into trouble when you are operating off of someone else's definition of success. I often think on Shark Tank, another change that Shark Tank has brought on to people's interpretation of what business really is, is they really feel like the value is in the idea versus the value in actually making it happen. Mm -hmm. You know, so people really think, I've got a great idea. This is, you're going to want to put your money here. I'm like... Ooh, I don't think so. Yeah. You know. I mean, I get those emails all the time. Oh, from I'm people. sure you do. Yeah. yeah. Either either because they want me to invest. I, I hate to break it to oh, them. They like, really I'm not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They I'll want... send all my guys over to you. <laughs> Sounds great. I didn't I, know you were investing. In that. <laughs> I won't invest in any of them. <laughs> but, uh, but also because they want me to write about them as mm. a means of getting started, right? So they'll be like, I have this great idea for a business. If you write about it, it'll take off, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like, oh, it doesn't work like that. You actually you, have to you start have, it first. You must have a coin phrase you email back, let me tell you, dear. What do you say to those people? Because <laughs> you get so many people like that. What do you say to them? Um, well, so the, the literal coin phrase I have, yeah. I've programmed into my phone. Uh, I hit, if I hit, I, I have a little like keyword shortcuts. If I hit DDD, it pops up with, I appreciate the invitation and interest. Unfortunately, my schedule is so tight that I have to decline most opportunities. Wishing you the best. Like that oh, gosh. Every oh, time. Wait, I'm going to copy that down. Yeah. DDD. I'll send it to you. <laughs> I love it. it you, know, you got to be efficient. So in your book, which I found very intriguing on many levels, Thank you. but in particular, um, I found it very interesting on how you address change and the phases of change. Yeah. It seems so simple when reading it. And then I really tested each phase against realities I've known. And it really is true. Why don't you explain that for yourself? Yeah, thanks. Your words are so good. So I appreciate that. So right. So in Build for Tomorrow, I argue that change happens in four phases. Mm-hmm. Panic. Everyone familiar with that? It's one I often skip. I, I didn't realize that was very true. I'm you skip panic? No, I don't think of people panicking about change. Like, oh, of yeah. course they should welcome change. It's an mm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. I go to step three kind of right, right away. Right. But most people are frozen, they yes. feel panic. They yeah. feel panic. And then they get to, so step two is adaptation, where they start to look around at what's available to them. How do they start to change? And do you think that phase is because they want to capitalize on the changing climate? Or are they just thinking, how do I make it through? Well, survive? Um, so I think that it depends on who you're talking to. And the way that I got to this insight was prior to the pandemic, I had noticed that the most successful entrepreneurs were also the most adaptable people that I had Absolutely. met. Absolutely. Number one trait. I Number think. one trait. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to understand how that was happening. After and, ambition, by the way. Mm, yeah. That's fair. And then the pandemic offered this really interesting insight because you you got to see everybody go through the same change at the same time. And what was your word for that in the pandemic? You coined a great phrase. You said everybody had a collective moment, but you said it better. Oh, yeah. Um, well, it was, a, I mean, it was a collective moment of change. I, I, I can't remember the exact language that I used unless you happen to have it in front it of me. I'm going to look for it because it, it was really so perfectly put. I said, I'm going to start borrowing that and not give him any credit. Mm, sounds so great. I said, oh, the pandemic forced a moment of collective change. Oh, I was right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it did. And it was, it was fascinating to me. From, from the the moment it started, 
when I was talking it to wasn't entrepreneurs. was scary to you? You didn't oh, panic oh, me? over it? Oh, I was terrified. Yeah. I was terrified it uprooted my life. I mean, I at the time, I was living in a small apartment with uh, my wife and two little boys. And we thought, what, what are we going to do? And also, what's going to happen to our income? And so we moved in with my parents in Colorado because they have a house. So we oh, would I have bet some room. they were happy to hear. Uh, they were until we were there for 18 months, <laughs> <laughs> which is what happened. Entrepreneur, like... You know, like everybody took a took a hit at first. Um, basically, like everything stopped. You know, and um, and at that moment yeah. when everything stopped, were you feeling panic? Like I don't know if this is going to keep going, or did you feel like it was just going to be a pause and you're going to go into better things? Which your book points out very well. So because I had focused so much before the pandemic on how entrepreneurs adapted, I I was thinking to myself. The win there will be winners here. And those winners will be the ones who understand how to meet people's new needs right now. Mm -hmm. And so I was panicking for myself, but also I was panicking because I didn't have an answer immediately. Like what 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 am I supposed to do? Waiting is always the hardest part. Yeah. And so I I made a decision for the brand, and I mean, I should say we made a decision at the brand, um, but I was, you know, deep, deeply involved in that conversation. And then I made a decision for my own personal brand and how I reached people, which was that we're going positive, right? Like, this is a scary world right now. And uh, mm. if you turn on the news, it's all about how everything is collapsing. Mm. But I know that there's going to be value at the other end of this for people. I'm seeing it immediately as I talk to people because I'm talking to entrepreneurs and they're saying, you know... Um, like I remember talking to this woman, uh, Megan Asha, she runs a, uh, like a trade show called founder made. And, and I was like, what are you going to do? Uh, because Especially in my field. yeah, you're not going to be able to host these things. And she said, you know what? Here's how I'm choosing to see it. We had a ton of other ideas that we could never get on the roadmap because running the trade shows always consumed all of our time yes. and energy. So the trade shows are on pause now. We're going to explore all those other ideas. And then hopefully at some point, we will have developed a bunch of other opportunities and we'll marry them to the trade show when it's able to come back. Wow. And I was like, that's amazing. But how did she make money? I mean, the other reality is she has people on her payroll. Right. She's got to keep them busy, still Mm -hmm. make payroll every week. Yeah. And she doesn't have the vehicle of a trade show with the front end of the cash coming in. Right. How did she make money to survive? Well, so I don't know how to fully answer that because I haven't asked her since that moment. But uh, I know that what they did in part, which isn't going to be a surprise, is that they shifted virtually because... Mm -hmm. Look, you know, the thing is with the thing is with big moments of change is that you can focus on how it impacts you and and, and you should. But don't forget that everyone else is going through a massive change, too, which means that they have needs, new needs, which means that they might need new people to solve those problems for them. Mm -hmm. And maybe the incumbents that used to solve those problems are not able to do it. And that is an opportunity for you, which which goes back to, I feel like I I should complete the four phases of change. So it's panic, adaptation, then new normal, right? Where you say, um, okay. Another word for that would be acceptance. Yes, (laughs) yes. Acceptance and in comfort, right? Where we find something that's familiar now. We've Mm -hmm. built a new foundation. We say, ah, I know what works now. (laughs) I did a lot of takeout. And then you get to wouldn't go back. The final phase wouldn't go back is and that you position that as the reward yes that's the payoff mm-hmm. where you say i have something so new and valuable that i wouldn't want to go back to a time before i had mm-hmm. it and i i really do believe that that's available to everyone which doesn't discount hardship and loss there was a lot of that but i do think that when you go through these transformative moments it forces you to be inventive 
and to discover that sometimes the greatest opportunities were ones that you had left outside. I'll, I'll tell you like a, a quick story. This, this is always stuck with me. I was talking to a woman named Lena. She runs a wig shop in Baltimore, Lena's Wigs. So right, like a nice lifestyle business doesn't need a, an investor, I don't think. I think um, I saw on Shark Tank anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, that was a part of her story I didn't know. So, um, so Lena ran a storefront in Baltimore. And um, you know how a storefront operates, right? You walk mm -hmm. in, you can browse. the, And she hired somebody. She had somebody on staff to greet the people who walk in off the street to look at wigs. And then the pandemic comes along and she can't welcome people into her store normally anymore. And so she's like, what, what am I going to do? And she realizes the, the only option she can think of is to do something that she was well aware of as a concept, but had always thought was a bad idea for her business, which is appointment only, move to appointment only. So people cannot walk in off the street anymore. They have to make an appointment and come in individually. Now, she always thought, terrible idea, because, mm. you know, why would you add friction to your it's customer? It's like putting another block in the way. Exactly. I would think that's a you would typical think. reaction. Right. Yeah. So like, why would we do that? But it's the only option. So she does it. And she discovers, to her great delight and amazement, two things. Number one, sales and profits go up. Ooh. Number two, customer happiness goes up. Mm. You want to guess they, why? Because they have privacy? That's part of it, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, as it turns out, you know who doesn't buy wigs? People who walk in off the street. Oh, really? <laughs> they don't buy wigs. So she realized that. So, you know, they, they come in, they browse. They're curious about wigs. But they're not her core customer. Mm. Her core customer is actually someone who is shopping generally for a very private reason, as you said, and usually religious or, or um, there's a health reason. And those people would love to shop for wigs, not being surrounded by randos off the street. Obviously, yeah. definitely. And Even if I had nothing wrong, I don't want to let anyone else see how I look in red hair. Totally. It's a private thing. It's private, private. And so and so here Lena was spending money on an employee to greet people mm -hmm. who were coming in off the street and not buying wigs at the disservice of and the succeeded. people who... Yeah. Do you know, with all the businesses I work with on Shark Tank, mm -hmm. I found there were two categories of entrepreneurs that yeah. came through the pandemic. Two-thirds of them didn't come through mm. because they were waiting it out. And the other yeah. third that came through were exactly like your week's story. They thought of another way of doing business with a lot of uncertainty, mm -hmm. not knowing what would work. But they had a willingness or they weren't risk-aversive yeah. or embarrassed to fail in any way. Yeah. They just pushed out. And I'll tell you, one I'd say easily a third of my businesses did so much better. And they constantly quietly say to me, I hate to say it about the pandemic. Mm. I hate to tell you that I did better, but it, you know, almost like heard, it's wrong to admit that. I've know? heard a lot of that. But it is about dealing with change. That's why I think your book is, is very, very timely. You had another expression I want mm. to ask about. Yeah. And it was two categories, an A and a B. Yeah. I, I was a little confused on that one. Okay. Opportunity set A and opportunity set B. It started feeling a little Harvard MBA to me. Oh, yeah. Explain that to somebody at my intellectual level. Okay. I, think. <laughs> I think you're underselling yeah. yourself. But um, but yeah, and, and by the way, I should say, Lena has now transformed her business as a result. She never went back to being a storefront because she learned a different way. That's the wouldn't go back moment. So what you're asking about is what I like to call work your next job. And this is something I think everybody should be doing no matter where you are. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it goes and this like this. This is really directed, from my understanding, toward an employee. Working it's, for somebody else. I think that it's it's primary. The way that I frame it is directed mm -hmm. as an at an employee, but I think that entrepreneurs need to be doing a version of this all the time too, which mm -hmm. we'll we'll talk about as soon as I, I lay it out. So here's the Harvard MBA version of it, So which is that I like to think of this as opportunity set A and opportunity set B. That is what's in front of you who's listening to this 
and, and me, and I would say you, Barbara, right now. And here they are. Two choices as to where you want to go in the future. Two, two opportunities that you've outlined. That's right. Yes. Opportunity set A mm -hmm. is everything that is asked of you. So if you have, if you are an employee, if you go in to work, you have a boss, that boss expects you to do things, mm -hmm. that is opportunity to say, hey, do a good job. It's odd. I wouldn't think of that as an opportunity per se. Well, it is yeah. because it's an opportunity for advancement, mm -hmm. right? It's an opportunity for a promotion, mm -hmm. do well, uh, grow in your career, right? Mm -hmm. You need to... Yeah, something you can measure yourself against. Yeah. I get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Opportunity set B is everything that's available to you that nobody's asking you to do. What's your best advice for vetting out what's available to you? You're in the same job for two years, you're very happy with what you're doing, and you say, find what's available to you. What's the methodology? Mm. So first, let me define what's available to you yeah. that nobody's asking you to do. So that could be something at your job where let's say you join a new team or take on a new responsibility, but it could also be something outside of your job where you like listening to podcasts and you decide to start a podcast or you take a class and learn a new skill. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you ask how, how to vet these things. I think that the starting point really should just be what excites and, and, and interests mm, you. I right? Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it, it, and I know that that sounds a little cliche, but frankly, you're, you're going to carve time out of what something you like. else that you're spending. You, you better be doing it on something that you like. Mm -hmm. And, and my argument is that opportunity set B doing things that are, available to you that nobody's asking you to do, that's always more important. Do you take the low hanging fruit in that instance and do what you naturally do well, let me grab that? Or do you try to look for things over your head and talent level and just say, I want to really stretch myself and do this? I think that you could do either. It depends on where you are in your career and, and, and what excites you. Um, you could also do a little bit of both, right? You could put yourself in a situation where you're taking a class to learn something and maybe mm -hmm. it's just an advancement of a current skill that you have, but you're also, I don't know, you're terrified of public speaking and you're going to start trying to do Get that. Right? Yeah, yes. like what, whatever it is. I think you can do a lot because the, the, the reason to do this is because if you only focus on opportunity set A, if you only focus on the things that you're asked to do, mm -hmm. you will only be qualified to do the things you're already doing. But opportunity set B is where growth happens and it will happen in ways that you cannot anticipate. And do you think the pandemic made that more uh, obvious to people or they went into hiding for the most part? I think and that... And why don't people yeah. ask to do more rather than just do the same job every day? I mean, that is a great question. Uh, I I mean, that's probably like a cultural and structural question as to like why people don't think to do that. But I'll, I'll tell you my own personal experience, uh, which, which was like a light bulb moment for me, um, which was I... Okay, so this this book, Build for Tomorrow, this is my first book with my name solely first on it. First of many, I'm sure. You're I, a very, very, very good writer. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. but, good thinker as well. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, you can keep showering me with compliments. That, I'll, that's I'll say, the that's it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's not my first book. Uh, so I wrote a romantic comedy with my wife You're a couple kidding. years ago. Oh. Yeah, and it was it was a lot of fun. It was called Mr. Nice Guy. But the reason I tell you it is not to hawk the book. It's to tell you that when it came out in 2018. I got two sets of reactions from people. Friends in media said, oh, congratulations, you sold the, the, the novel. Right? This is, it's a romantic comic. It had nothing to do with my work. And entrepreneurs who I knew had a different reaction. Mm. They did not say congratulations. They said, oh, that's interesting. What are you going to do with it? Oh. Because I realized that entrepreneurs think vertically where everyone else thinks horizontally. Which is to say, everyone else thinks, I'm going to do a thing, I'm going to put it out in the world, I'm going to move along. 
you think about world, move along. Mm -hmm. Entrepreneurs think the only reason to do something is because it is the foundation upon which the next thing will be built. Absolutely true. I think the, the main thought of every great entrepreneur is, how can I use this? Yeah. How can I use this? Mm -hmm. Really how can not I use like this? interesting as a concept or a new idea, but how can I use right. it? And if they can, it's useless. I, I, I love they that. Throw it, a, throw it out. Yeah. Right away. yeah. It's a great way of thinking. And, yeah. and that's not natural, right? Like that's not a natural way that people are thinking. So to your question about why don't people do this? Why don't they build upon things? At work, I think often the answer is because they weren't taught to and because they weren't exposed to other people who think that way. Mm. And when you when you are, which is why, again, to go back to storytelling, I think it's so valuable if you don't have that network around you mm. to be able to see it, right? I mean, to be able to see the stories of people who come out on Shark Tank and, and you'll hear that they did this and it led to this and it led to that and that's how they had the big idea for whatever, right? Like, that's valuable because it, it, it helps calibrate your way of thinking and mm. realize that, that that you should be filtering not, not just on like you know what can i do today but rather really like what can i do today that will lead to something bigger tomorrow mm -hmm. when someone makes the cover of entrepreneur magazine mm -hmm. who is an entrepreneur yes. i think it's like making it big your new cover girl jennifer lopez yes. is for october how mm -hmm. did that happen it doesn't seem like a likely candidate mm -hmm. and how did that actually happen she called you you called her oh i i i, I wish she looked sexy on it uh, she looks pretty good, I gotta say, um, but we didn't, we weren't really going for sexy on the cover of Entrepreneur. But um, uh, so I know I wish I was in a position where like JLo is just directly calling me and asking if, but we're not there yet. Um, that came out, that particular one came out because I had read that uh, that Jennifer had built a, a large partnership with Grameen America, which mm -hmm. uh, uh, um, um, gives micro loans to, I think, I don't know if it's specifically Latina entrepreneurs, I but is, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and so I, I thought that was really wonderful and interesting. And, um, and I thought she might have a lot to say about supporting entrepreneurs and the way that in which we filter our cover, like who belongs on the cover is I basically am asking a couple questions. I'm, I'm thinking, is this somebody the average person knows, right? Like walking through an airport, do they know them? Mm. Do they like them? Mm. And do they feel like they could learn something from them? Mm. And that's a, that's a trifecta. That's yeah. perfect. And uh, JLo. How many people are out there like that? Definitely JLo. Uh, definitely JLo. Uh, but you don't think yeah. with the imprint of entrepreneur mm -hmm. over her head, people will say, entrepreneur? She's not an entrepreneur. I'm, I know she's involved in businesses and of yeah. course that very good, good cause, but you don't think it just it just really surprised me. And I thought, so, I'm not sure I'm buying this. Yeah, no, it's fair. It's fair. It was it was interesting when I first started at Entrepreneur. Uh, I started by putting people that you would think of as traditional entrepreneurs on the cover, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, and that included you. And uh, but also, you know, uh, Reed Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, and you know, people who have a large profile but are really within the business world. And the the president of entrepreneur at some point said can we can we experiment with celebrities and i was like i really wow. i don't want to because it's i think that losing your soul yeah your credibility <laughs> yeah. I, I, on yeah. first blush you feel that way right yeah. and, I, and i felt like you know the 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 average entrepreneur is going to see the celebrity and say mm -hmm. oh but that person has so many more resources than i do and so many more advantages i don't have anything but to you forgot kind of, about sales but you forgot about <laughs> sales and as it turns out you have to think of the cover of a magazine really as marketing for the magazine. Did you see immediate pop-up in the readership, the subscription rate? How did that, it, did it play out immediately? It, it you know what, it depends upon the celebrity uh, mm -hmm. we found, right? Mm -hmm. So we found, and I don't know exactly how to figure out 
I mean, I have all the data and I look at it and I try to puzzle through what I'm learning from it. But, you know, it's hard to, to know when, you know, this celebrity sells really well and this celebrity doesn't sell really well. Like, what was that? Was that that one person didn't feel like enough of an entrepreneur? And, and mm. how does it? So uh, and and it's it. it it's so random that I just have really struggled to, I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. One person, I don't know if I, I well, whatever, I'm, I'm down the road. I don't know if I'm supposed to share this, but like one person who I thought, you know, I don't think that this is going to sell very well was Maria Sharapova. Mm-hmm. Maria Sharapova, the you know tennis yes, star. And this was back when she was so, still in so tennis. So beautiful. Come on. She sure is. And, uh, and that probably helps, frankly, with selling. And you can make your cover but, much taller. But, <laughs> uh, but she sold incredibly well, right? Mm-hmm. And then there were others that I was sure, oh, this person, people know about them in business. This is, and, and, it, and it didn't sell well. It's very, very interesting and hard to predict. But, um, but yes, when it hits... It, it hit much higher than mm. anything that we were doing with just the entrepreneurs. And, and how does social media factor in? I would think that yeah. would be a major card. If they have a huge following, chances are good people like them. Chances mm-hmm. are very good they're resonating with people, yeah. communicate well. And I would think that would be a good barometer as to what might work and what might not work. Um, so yes and no, you'd, you would think. But I've also found that in some cases... We've had people who, and here I will be anonymous, but we've had people who are exceptionally present on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Have really thriving followings and they're very engaged. And 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 they said to us, oh, I, you know, I, we loved, I'd love to promote the cover when it's on. And um, and then the cover didn't sell that well. And I have mm-hmm. a theory, which I don't know is correct. But they didn't promote it? No, no they did promote they it. Did. They yeah. did promote it and mm-hmm. still didn't sell that well. Um, even though... On social, their followers were all like, oh, congratulations, so excited, right? Um, here's my theory. My theory is that for some people, uh, when the they have built such a relationship with their followers on social media that their followers feel totally satiated, right? Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't need to go buy something that has their favorite person on it's it. It's asking a lot. Cause they're, yeah, because they're getting it directly from the mm. person, right? So why do they need some other third party to but give it to them? But they read your online version. Do they subscribe typically? That's more in their ballpark. I, I think that it depends upon the reader. So uh, because a lot of people will read a celebrity profile because they're curious about the celebrity or because they're um, they're a new entrepreneur and they're just dabbling and, oh, I'd be very interested to hear what that person has to say. Mm-hmm. But I find that to get somebody to actually spend money, they have to be a little more established. And mm-hmm. that's those people who are buying the buying the magazine. Um, but you know what I you know what I've loved about those things is I have taken the approach of, if I'm writing about someone, and I do a lot of these profiles myself, uh, let's say Jimmy Fallon. Uh, I interviewed Jimmy Fallon, loved him. Um, I go in thinking, nobody cares about Jimmy Fallon, mm, right? Everybody loves Jimmy. Everybody loves Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. here's the thing. If you're an entrepreneur and you're reading this magazine because you build things for yourself, you're not hosting a late night talk show. So mm. maybe you don't care about Jimmy Fallon. So what do I have to do? I have to figure out the thing that Jimmy has figured out that has helped him build his, like, forget business, just helped him build his people. sense of self, his people, something mm-hmm. successful that he can articulate to others. And so that's what I do. I come in and I'm like, Jimmy, I'm going to figure out <laughs> together with you what you have to teach entrepreneurs because you figured something out of, about your career and your life. And I want to mm-hmm. figure out what that is and share it with others. And people are always game for that. And it's a lot of fun. And then we get into these really interesting conversations. And those are the profiles. Showing the uh, the force of, of a celebrity 
of a celebrity. I'm curious to ask, were you at that shoot with Jennifer Lopez for the cover? No, no I no, no, I wasn't. I know. I don't to get a ticket on. That. I I don't get to go to a lot of these. I'll be honest. I know. Why wouldn't you jump in on the really juicy ones you, because of curiosity? Just out of, I know. I probably should. The answer is Bring me uh, next time. Oh, you got it. Yeah, I'll call you up. We'll go. It'll be a lot of fun. Um, you know, the answer is like a lot of things are happening all at the same time. I, I don't know how to give photo direction. I have like no purpose. Oh, I would just things. sit there and watch it. Just to have fun. On, they have been about fun. about dinner and night. Come on. I mean, I, I've been to some. I went to the, we did a photo shoot with The Rock and Danny Garcia, his business oh. partner. That was a lot of fun. The two of them are wonderful. You showed wonderful. up for that one, didn't you? Well, I also profiled. I was writing that one. So okay, I went and okay. we sat down. But um, yeah, it, it is. It's really fun. Who was your favorite? Because I couldn't tell who you really liked and who you didn't like. Oh, I mean, I liked... Nobody is in that book that I didn't like. <laughs> but who is um, just said, boy, that was the best. I'm so happy I did this book and got to meet them. Um, okay, I'll tell you two. Uh, I'll tell you famous and not famous. Okay. Okay. There. So famous, uh, Ryan Reynolds. Oh. That guy, so smart. Ha- mm-hmm. Like so smart. Uh, how's that guy? Now? He hasn't. He hasn't been a guest shark, has he? he no, sh- he hasn't. He but should. He would make a good guest shark. Oh, he'd be so good. Thanks for the suggestion. I'll pass it forward. You got it. I yeah. I get some sort of uh, no, reward for that. No, oh, no, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, Ryan started. For those who don't know, he was a. I mean, was still is an actor, but also then started an advertising agency called Maximum Effort, and he's got these businesses now: Aviation Gin and Mint Mobile, and um. And he was so insightful about storytelling and marketing and mm. also change. Um, he said this line to me, which I put in the book and I've repeated so many times because I just loved it. Where he said, to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad. Oh, so true. It's so true, right? Because what I love about that is that when you start something new, mm. you, you're not going to be good at Like, just take not as really fact. You have no idea where it's going to land. No. You're, you're not risk taking it big time. So the so the thing that actually separates successful from not successful people isn't necessary. I mean, look, there's a lot of things, but right, but isn't just that successful people started something they were really good at it at first. No, it's that they were able to tolerate being bad long mm. enough that they got to good. Yeah. I really love that. Um, and so then true as as it pertains to entrepreneurs in, in particular. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then and then the other person you like best. So the non the non famous. Um, is I'll tell you a quick story because uh, I love it so much. Um, so I tell a story in the book about this guy named Sam who started Dogfish, which is a brewery in Delaware. Mm-hmm. And when he was early, early days was for this brewery, um, he released a beer called 90 Minute IPA, mm. which maybe beer fans are familiar with. Very strong. This is a 9% alcohol by volume IPA. Well, 9%, that, that'll put you on the floor, right? Like a Budweiser is like a 4.5%. So like 9%, like you drink it and then you're on the floor. <laughs> and uh, and his distributor comes to him and says, you know, I, it's good beer, tastes really good. Uh, can you make a version people can drink standing up? Because uh, that'd probably be a good <laughs> idea, you know? And so he's like, that, hey, that's smart. And so he makes 60-minute IPA, which is 6% alcohol by volume. So, so a, 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 you know, a, a more session drinking, uh, you know, you can have a few of them and you're still standing, basically. And, uh, and so he releases this beer and people really like this beer and then they love it and then they need it. They like, have to have this beer. And, uh, and, and again, what was the percentage on that? So uh, the percentage of alcohol was, it was, nine. was, it was six, six percent. But here's the really important percentage, which was that this thing was on track to become 75 to 80 percent of all sales of dogfish. Mm. 75 to 80 percent of everything that he sells was going to be this one style of beer. Now, you work with a lot of, you know, a, a lot of CPG brands. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Do you hear that and think, this is really good? Or do you think this is very bad? Inexperienced uh, entrepreneurs will always go for that angle. They charge, leave what they're doing and charge for that, but it's always a mistake. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Because here's here's what he learned, or here's what he knew. Right? Everyone would think, you sell, you sell, sell, sell. As much of that, you got hit product, but he knows things are going to change. Mm-hmm. Tastes will change. And so if he allows this thing to be a runaway success, that means that every time anyone interacts with dogfish in a bar, in a restaurant, on Amtrak, wherever, they're going to have 60-minute IPA, which means they're going to think of them as an IPA brand, IPA mm-hmm. into PLL, very popular style of beer. And that's fine mm-hmm. until tastes change. And then he will not be known as a hot IPA brand. He will be known as an old brand. And that is death. Mm. So he makes a decision. And the decision is that he's going to cap sales of his best-selling product mm, at 50%. Smart. Really smart. Also good uh, good and smart from other, for other angles as well. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a bold decision. And it's a hard decision, right? Because who wouldn't want to just make the money? But he caps it, which means that there are a lot of people ordering this beer and they are not getting it. Mm. And uh, they're angry at him. They're yelling at him on the streets of Delaware, mm-hmm. right? And I've walked around Delaware with Sam. He's Beyonce in Delaware. People want to take selfies with him. They're yelling at him because, you know, you run the local restaurant. You can't carry the hot beer. What's going on? And he kept doing that for a long time. And what was the end of the whole thing? Well, so he said to people when they would reach out, he'd say, look, I'm, I'm really sorry we make the beer super fresh and it's just, it's not available right now. We're trying to keep up with demand, which is basically a lie, right? And uh, and then he would say, but in the meantime, why don't you try some of our other styles of beer? Why don't you try our Saison or whatever, pumpkin ale? And that is how Sam used this moment mm. to get people to experience the wide range of products. Smart guy. A very smart guy. And therefore get to know Dogfish, not as an IPA brand that becomes an old brand, but rather as an innovative brand. So what's the Mm. end of the story? The end of the story is that a few years ago, a few years ago, he sold that company for $300 million. Oh my gosh, I didn't expect that kind of an ending. Wow. (laughs) And that's not what happens if you cash in short term. So that, I mean, that, I walked around that brewery with Sam years ago, and that story has stayed with me ever since. As it should. And yet people don't see that opportunity as a loss leader some a wrong way to go. They mm-hmm. really don't. They get so excited. I see it again and again and yeah, again. Yeah, right. And it's like, you, you have to, the lesson to me is, is it's like, you have to change before you're forced to, mm-hmm. right? He could have waited. He could have mm-hmm. waited. He could have tried to make as much money as he could and sure. then wait until IPAs weren't as popular. And mm-hmm. then this change would have slammed into him and he would have been scrambling to keep up. And who knows what would have happened to his company. You have to change before you're forced to. Jason, what a pleasure, really. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's all we have time for today. If you have a question, leave me a voicemail on the Business Unusual hotline, 888-BARBARA. That's 888-B-A-R-B-A-R-A. You can also tweet it to me at Barbara Corcoran, and I may just answer it on a future episode. You've been listening to Business Unusual with me, Barbara Corcoran. Come back next week to hear more steps and missteps I took on the path to success.